ever wondered, anybody ever wondered, here I raise my Ebenezer, what's, are we lifting Scrooge up high? Like what is the, no, we, so it's, it was, a, it was a, in the Old Testament they would use these stones called the Ebenezer stone, it was a stone of help, and we're saying symbolically we're, we're calling out to him for help, so there you go, the more you know, there you go, yeah, thanks Ryan for participating. Uh, my name is Justin, one of the elders and teachers here at Peninsula Grace. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you today uh, and be preaching the word. If you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, the words will be on the screen as, as well. And uh, today's message, we're calling the war of the words, war of the words. Uh, words are powerful. Uh, we've all experienced this in our lives. Uh, one of the first times I really remember this sticking out to me was when I was 11 years old. Uh, I was sitting on the couch with a friend of mine, and I was wearing shorts. Uh, and, and you know when you sit on something uh, with the shorts, and they ride up, and then your, your thighs do that extremely unflattering spread? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Little pancake things going on? All right, so I had that going on, and this kid, and I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it, but he reached over and he looked at me and he, he tapped my thighs and he went, chubby thighs, chubby thighs. And I punched him. In the, no, I didn't. So now, you know, it was interesting because perhaps for the first time ever as an 11-year-old, I was kind of contemplating my own body image. Like, is, do I have chubby thighs? And if I do, is that a bad thing to have chubby thighs? And I remember kind of that Adam and Eve moment, you know, where my eyes were open and I realized my thighs were naked, right? There was just kind of this, this, this moment and, 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 and a consciousness came over me of this kind of this feeling of shame and, and insecurity and like they need some fig leaves to cover these thighs up and what are we going to do here? Um, but, and obviously, as a 37-year-old that I still remember that story, it stuck with me, right? I'm fine. I'm, I'll get over it. It's, it's good. Uh, but... The, these words that I'm sure were these idle words that he didn't even think about, he just saw and reacted to, they were powerful and they stuck with me. Words can also be powerful in an, in an encouraging way. And oftentimes su Sundays, that's your day off. Like this is my, this is the only day of the week I work. So, so it's hard. No. Uh, so, but after a long day, I've preached two sermons. You know, today we're going to have the auction. I'm auctioneering things. I'll get home this after mid-afternoon and I'm exhausted, right? I'm tired. It's been a long day. And sometimes, man, somebody will send a text just saying, thank you. Listen, Maggie Peterson this last uh, week, just thank you for something specific you said in the sermon, uh, the way the Lord used it in my heart. And man, that can make, that can make your day brighter than the actual sun itself, right? You get that one little word of encouragement. I'll be passing Jill in the house and she'll just look over and be like, hey, I like that shirt. I'm like, hey, 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 she likes that shirt, right? I'm floating, right? Just one little word of encouragement. They can be powerful for good and for, for evil. Uh, it's been said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me, right? That's what they say, but in the words of Pastor Larry, horse feathers, right? That is not true. We know the power of words. The wisest man ever, Solomon, said, with their words, the godless destroy their friends. Words can destroy. They can, they can kill. We also know that words can create and give life. At the beginning of all things, when there was only God, how did, how did this universe come into existence? Words. And God said, right at the beginning of our Bibles, and there was light. We also know not only did he create the world with words, when we went astray in our sin, he recreated the, word, the world with the word. John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the living word of God. Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel message, Paul said, is the power of God to save, to raise the dead. The word and the power that the gospel news, the good news conveys. And how do we hear that? 
He says, and Paul says later in that same book, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God that we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. And just like on that couch, those idle words that we say without a thought, we're going to give an account for everything that we've said, everything that we've proclaimed one day. Jesus said this hauntingly in Matthew 12. I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word, chubby thighs, chubby thighs, every word that you say. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. And I got to say, as a talker, this, this passage is terrifying, right? That's why God, he, he instructs us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. He says, think about your words. Because our words have the ability to build up, and they also have the ability to tear apart, to tear down. He, he says in Ephesians 4, therefore, don't lie to each other. Don't use words to spread falsehood. Instead, speak truth to one another. You're a family. We speak truth. And it's not just that we say true things versus false things. It's the way that we say them. He says, let nothing corrupt, nothing that corrodes, that tears down, come out of your mouth. But only that. He says, the only thing that should come out of your mouth is something that will build up, that will encourage, that will give life, not take. There's a song I had learned early on in my childhood that helps you remember this. And I wanted to share that with you this morning. It goes like this. Building, building, building others up. Building, building, building others up. With a kind word, a compliment, a friendly howdy-do. We're building others' confidence. It's what we're supposed to do. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now we're going to repeat. But only what... Okay, so the word repeat, in the English language, I'll say something, and then you say it back, okay? I, I don't, maybe you're all Haitian Creole now, I don't know. But only what? Thank you, three people. But it's helpful for? Building others up and up and up. Whoo! Now, what I've learned is that if you do that, if you sing that song to somebody when they're tearing down, you annoy them into righteousness, right? <laughs> and I've tried it. That's a free gift for me to the parents in this room. Use it with your kids. They'll hate you, but man, they're going to learn how to speak edifying. Uh, so we, this morning, we are studying God's inspired word through the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Uh, we're in 2 Timothy. We've seen 1 and 2 Timothy in this series. And we've seen that in this last, this is the last letter that Paul ever pens. He's imprisoned in Rome for the second and what will be final time. He knows his days are numbered. He says that in the last chapter. And we know now in hindsight that Paul is beheaded in Rome uh, for preaching the gospel. And so in his last earthly days, Paul writes to Timothy. He's working, he's shepherding a church in Ephesus, which was like the New York City of their province. And he encourages Timothy to stay faithful to the teaching, to the speaking words of life, of that good news that saves. And to make disciples, he said in chapter 2, verse 2, to pass this message on to others who will then be able to pass it on to even more people. In the word of God, he says, I might be in chains, Timothy, but the word of God cannot be chained, amen? 
He's told Timothy, this work is going to be hard. When we follow Jesus, just like Jesus suffered, so will we suffer. And we've seen that in Timothy's story here, that Timothy's suffering inwardly. Uh, we talked about this last week, that, that Timothy has these fears, that he has a desire at times to want to give up, a temptation to get distracted by other things off topic. And then we saw that they're suffering from outside the church, that the Roman Empire hates Christians because they don't bow the knee to, to their God, Caesar, but to the one true God, Jehovah. And then the Jewish people that did, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah are also persecuting the, the Jews and Gentiles who said that Jesus was the Messiah. And then now this week, we're going to see suffering from inside the church. If you've been following this series with us, man, Ephesus, the church in, in Ephesus is crazy. They're full of, of division and conflict and arguments, right? Nothing like the church today, right? <laughs> oh, buddy. Uh, we need to learn how to deal with conflict today, too, just as much, right? We have arguments that, end, that are, are inside of our church full of recovering sinners just like then. And Paul's going to remind him, use your words, Timothy, to tell the truth, not lies. And use your words not to tear down, but to be building others up and up and up. Who? Last week, we looked at the faithful soldier. This week, we're going to look at the useful worker. There are three principles that I see in this text this morning that I want us to hear and apply to our own hearts today. So number one, if you're filling in the blanks in your, in your bulletin, if you didn't get a bulletin back out in the foyer, you can grab one. Uh, number one, the useful worker first presents themselves to God. They, they, the first thing they do is present themselves to God. Uh, anybody grow up in Awana? Any Awana attenders here in the house? All right. Did you know that's actually a, a, a Cubby, Sparkies, that whole thing? That's actually an acronym. Uh, it, it means it stands for approved workmen are not ashamed. I don't know if you knew that growing up in Awana. This is today, this is the Awanaverse, right? You're going you're gonna to read the Awana. We are Awana's Cubbies. We're happy all day long. We know that Jesus loves us. That's why we... All right, I promise it's the last annoying kid song I'll sing to you. Uh, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. A workman, approved workmen are not ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. He says, do your best, Timothy. Do your best. This word means to, to exert, to endeavor, to make haste. It made me think of the, uh, the Gandalf line, right? Run, shadow facts. Show us the meaning of haste. Right? So we're going to get after it, he says, Timothy. I want you to sweat. I want you to work hard. I want you to exert energy and to do what? What is this thing that he's working after, that he's working so hard to do, to do his best? To present yourself to God. Present yourself to God. This, this word means to place before. To place in the presence of so we think about our own lives. What matters most in our lives? What's the most important thing in our lives? It is our relationship with God himself. Our, and our supreme act of worship before God is to offer ourselves, to place ourselves in his presence. Romans 12 tells us this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present, that's the same word as in this verse 15, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says worship is not primarily to sing in songs on Sunday mornings. It is the offering, the presenting of ourselves in God's presence. And how do we come into his presence as rebel sinners? There's one way. He says, by the mercies of God. Not that we can enter his presence based on our own merit, our own awesomeness. 
but by the mercy of God that what he did for us through Jesus, it's only by the blood. That's why we sang earlier, we come as we are, not because we are sufficient, but because Christ was sufficient for us. Amen. So we enter into his presence. In fact, our, our church's mission verse uses the same word, Colossians 1. We, our goal is to present everyone complete in Christ. That while we're here on earth, we want our, our mission, our focus to be bringing as many people as possible into the presence of God. And how do we bring them into his presence? In the name of Jesus, through the person and work of Jesus. And what's our part in that? We don't save people. We don't raise the dead. We use our words. We, pro we proclaim the one who can raise the dead. We admonish and teach every person of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, how does Paul say that Timothy is to present himself to God? Look at the next part of this. As one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. He says, you're going to present yourself as a worker. An approved worker, not an ashamed worker. Now, in essence, a word, what does worker mean? It means one who works for another. Two very simple concepts here. That a worker does work, right? You're not a worker if you're not working. But it also implies that you're working for somebody else. He says, in, in, you're working for another. So let's say that I decided I'm going to quit my job here at Peninsula Grace and uh, look for some, a place with more upward mobility. And I walk down the road to Coffee Roasters, now called Mel's Cafe. Who's the boss of Mel Ca Mel's Cafe? Not Tony Danza. It is, the boss is Mel, right? That's why it's called Mel's Cafe. Um, so if I work at Mel's, Mel's is my boss. She's the one without the beard, if you were wondering. Uh, so what matters most to me? That I do my best, that I exert my energy to be approved by Mel. She's my boss. She signs my, my paychecks, right? I want to have fun. I want to I impress the customers with my skills, making the lattes. This is how I'd make a latte. I've never been a barista, but I imagine this is how you make a latte, right? <laughs> making these croissants that you see. I got yelled at the first service for showing these. Everybody's like, I'm hungry. I'm like, eat breakfast. Um, at the end of the day, there is only one person who signs my paycheck. It's not the customer. I'm not here to please the customer. I'm not here to please myself. I'm here to please Mel. I work for Mel. I need to be approved by Mel, not ashamed by Mel. Listen, the Christian life, there, there is no self-employment. We're not working for ourselves. Our old master was sin and death. We've been freed from that master, Romans 6 says, and given to a new master, Jesus Christ. And we now belong to him. We work for him. But listen, there is no aut autonomy. Nobody out here as humans just works for themselves. And so now, raised from the dead to a new master, Jesus, we work for him. And so the ultimate question is, does my boss, does my good and loving boss approve of my work or is he ashamed of my work? Francis Chan, uh, pastor, he, he has seven questions that he asks himself before every sermon. And I found this really helpful. I do this every morning. I did, did it this morning as I'm preparing my message. And I ask myself these seven questions every morning, every Sunday morning. And this is the first one. Am I more worried about what people think of my message or what God thinks of my message? And I have to actually, I, I know the right answer on paper, but I have to say, what do I actually believe? Because it's easy, right? It's easy to want to be impressed, to want to impress everybody else. I mean, they laughed at my jokes. They came up to me and just how much I, my, my message changed their life. I mean, it's easy to make myself the center of this. And to care more about what you think than what God thinks. Now, I love you. I'm here to preach the message to you. But ultimately, I work for him, not for you. 
And I'm here to honor the, the one that has given us this message, the, the one that I and you ultimately work for. One day I'm going to stand before him. We're not standing before each other. And the question is, did he approve of my work? Was he ashamed of my work? So the first thing we see, the first principle here is that we present ourselves before God and God alone. But then the, the necessary follow-up question is, man, what is the work that God has called us to? And, and what kind of work does he approve of? And what kind of work is he ashamed of? Let's look at the next point. The useful worker rightly handles the word of truth from God. Rightly handles the word of truth from God. What's the work? He says right next in, in verse 15, the next, after the next comma. Rightly handling the word of truth. This is what the worker does. Handles the truth. We're all, we're all going to say words and the question is, do we use the words rightly or do we use them wrongly? So the, the, we see two principles here in this passage that he wants to contrast. First of all, let's look at the wrong handling of words. And he makes it very, his point in this passage is very clear. The wrong use that he has in view here is arguing. Look at what he says in verse 14. Charge them, the, the church at Ephesus that Timothy's working at, charge those people before God not to quarrel about words. Verse 16, avoid a reverent babble. Avoid foolish, ignorant controversies, and the Lord's servant must not be, must not be quarrelsome. Now, this word quarrelsome actually could refer to physical fighting, to, to fight, to be an armed combatant, uh, those who were engaged in hand-to-hand -hand struggle. So it could be a, a fisticuff, it could be a physical fighting, but it could also be verbal. Those who engage in a war of words, a war of words. Growing up, I, one of the primary battlefields that I engaged wars of words on was in the backseat of our family's station wagon. Right? You know this if you have kids, if you've been a kid, uh, that fighting in the backseat of the car just kind of comes with territory. Mom, Jeremy's looking out my window. Right? <laughs> no, I'm not. Yes, you are. I hate you. Right? I hate your guts. More. And it just kind of goes on and on. Uh, now, why are we arguing? Well, in, uh, in this argument, what I've found is very rarely is what we're arguing about what it's actually about. Right? It's never about what it's about. So it's not about Jeremy looking out my window. What it's about is probably something that happened earlier. He stole a toy from me or looked at me wrong, some heinous crime. And, and so now it's on, right? And I'm picking a fight with him to get him in trouble, to make myself look good, him look bad, and I'm going to win. If I can defeat my opponent and get him in trouble with the long arm of the law, mommy, right? It comes down to motive. I'm not interested in the truth of whether or not Jeremy's looking out my window. I just want to be right. And, and Paul says, what you're doing is you're tearing each other down with these words. It's war. And in war, there is always casualty. There's always destruction. He says, here's four things that come out of these, these war of the words. First one, they are useless, foolish, and worthless. These are words he uses to describe these vain arguments. He says, nobody wins when you argue like this. The second thing he points out is they can ruin those who hear them. Verse 14, these arguments do no good. They only ruin the hearers who are the, the other people listening to the argument. So imagine for a moment you've got two Christians at a jam-packed restaurant, back when that was able to be a thing, and, and they're, they're yelling at each other, screaming at one another over the, the use of the Greek word love, right? The biting irony. They scream at each other over love. Other people are watching. That's what Christ, that's how they behave. That's, huh, ruins the hearers. And then we also see that they spread like gangrene. 
Mm. Their, their talk will spread like gangrene, he says. So I wanted to give you a powerful visual here of what gangrene looks like when it spreads. So check, I'm just kidding, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. Some scars, some of you would be cold sweats tonight. Gangrene! Um, but what happens, as I understand it, gangrene, essentially what he's referring to is inflammation in one body part. I got Dr. Abel here. He can correct me later if I'm wrong. Um, if not treated, though, it'll spread. It can, it can spread very rapidly, and this can actually start eating away at the bone itself. And what he's saying here is two things, that this kind of this toxic speech, it's corrosive, and, and it's contagious. So we're not an island. And when we treat each other like this, uh, division and argument, it can take down the entire body. Right? The, the effects that can have on us are very widespread and leave us with a terrible testimony. The last thing he says is they can cause people to actually leave the faith. To leave the faith. Look at what he says in verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting, or that word can mean destroying, the faith of some. So there was this, this false teaching at the church at Ephesus that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of believers had already happened. And we don't have time to get into that. But the, the, the point here is that this argument was causing people to, to leave the faith. Both because it's a lie and because of the destructive nature of these kind of arguments. So he says, don't quarrel. Don't, don't, don't fight each other over the wrong motives for the, for the wrong reasons. Because listen, if your goal is just to be right, you never will be. If, if, if my goal is just to be right, then I won't be. So what's the right way? What's the right way to handle words? This is what he wants to show Timothy. The right handling of words is teaching the truth. Teaching the truth. So two things with, with this. Number one, we need to know the truth. You can't teach the truth if you don't know it. Because uh, verse 15, a worker rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling. This, this phrase meant uh, to make straight. To cut straight. Uh, it, it comes from the, the, the root word here is ortho. So what do you hear with that? The orthodontist, right? What is the orthodontist trying to do? Straighten those teeth by strapping those braces onto you, right? Straighten. Now, what does the straightening imply? Straight implies there could be crooked, right? Correct implies there could be incorrect. Right means there could be wrong. Truth and lie, they both exist. In Galatians 2, we see, man, this battle of the titans. Paul comes at Peter. He calls Peter out in front of an entire crowd because of Peter's hypocrisy. He's refusing to eat with the Gentile Christians. And, and Paul sees this as a direct affront to the truth of the gospel, that we're all now one in Christ. And so he's not afraid to oppose Paul. He's not afraid to oppose people when the gospel is at stake. In fact, his whole tone in Galatians isn't exactly hold hands and sing kumbaya. He, there, he, he comes at them, those who are denying the true gospel, and he makes his argument, and he makes it passionately. What Paul says here, he says, don't argue and don't quarrel. This isn't our modern day kind of relativity of truth. Ah, whatever you want to believe is cool for you, and I'll believe, but that's a false peace. That's a false peace. He's not talking about the relativity of truth. There is a truth. It, we, we, we can't rightly handle the truth if we don't know it. See, God is truth. And he's revealed the truth to us in his word, uh, through Jesus. And there are truths that we need to know. Know for life. There are truths that we need to give our lives for and, and to be willing to die for. And to be able to teach clearly. There is truth. There's absolute truth. But the question 
is not just knowing the truth, but how to teach that truth. Know the truth, but also know how to teach the truth. And two things, he wants to talk about manner and motive. First of all, manner. The manner is love. He says, look at verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He says, don't stoop to their level of quarreling, but love. Now, love's not in, the word love's not in this text, is it? But what do we know from Corinthians 13, the fruit of the Spirit? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. We see love all over the page here. We must speak and act consistently with the message that we're speaking. We, we don't, God loves you, you stupid duty head. That's the worst I can allow to say from the pulpit. Um, we correct sin, right? We correct lies. Truth matters. But he says we, oppo- we oppose, but how does he say to do it? We oppose our opponents with gentleness. That word can mean meekness or humility. And here's the difference between confronting in humility versus confronting in pride. Uh, Look, uh, we were just reading this week in our reading plan. A, A gentle, humble answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You could be saying the same thing. But am I coming gently, humbly, or am I coming guns blazing, right? Proud, coming in hot. So when we approach other people, we need to do so humbly. Not coming in going, turn or burn, sinner, I got all the information and you don't know it. And we get, that's not going to go well, right? But what about phrases like when we come to somebody and we, we think maybe they're doing something they shouldn't be doing or in the wrong. What about a, what about a question instead of an, a, a, a word first? Coming in humble going, I'm a human that doesn't know everything. So it's simply saying, I could be wrong in this. And how far could it go to just say, I could be wrong? This is what I see going on. This is my perspective. This is how I understand the word would apply to your, to your life in this moment. And it seems like things are, but I could be, see the, the humility in those kind of phrases and the humility to remember we're no better. <laughs> we're a sinner too. That, that we're not on our holy rollers going get up to my level, right? So the manner is in love and humility, but in the motive, how, what's, what's, the, what's the purpose of this conversation? What's the purpose of this opposition? It must be restoration. Look at, and Paul says this, verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance. That word just means to change your mind, to see things from God's point of view. He might grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you hear the language here? The the, the conversation is not about my victory over you, but your victory over sin. That we're not to see people as a boxer in the other end of the ring to fight, but as a captive to be freed from the lies of Satan and the bondage of sin. The motive isn't to win. It's not to be right. It's not to be better than them, to quarrel. That's what quarreling does. It's to seek the truth together, to see restoration, restoration between them and God and and perhaps restoration between the two of you. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The purpose that Jesus came for was to set the captives free. So maybe this week you're engaged in an argument of some sort. 
Now, we know this last year, my goodness, with COVID and, the rela- and debating masks and now vaccines, and, and, we, and we know all the, the politics, and, and of course you believe you're right. Of course I believe I'm right. Of course you're arguing about something you care about. Most of the time, we're not arguing over stuff that we don't really care about. I'm not going to passionately argue with you that the toilet paper should go over and not under. That's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Why are you... I'm just kidding. <laughs> over does make a lot of sense. Under doesn't... If you're... You're repent of that. I don't know. Anyway, I'm off track now. The Bible says don't argue. You should ask yourself when you're engaged in a controversy, a couple questions. What's my manner? Am I coming in pride? Am I, am I coming in just to look good? Am I coming in just to win and, and, and to show them they, if only they'd know everything I knew? Or am I coming in humble? Am I coming in recognizing uh, two fellow sinners trying to figure out truth together? And what's my motive? Why am I engaged in this exchange? Is it to win? Is it to beat them? Is it to be right? Or is it to see freedom to people to know the truth and know their God? We also have to remember there's, there's a time or place. There's a time or place. I remember when I was coaching basketball, I, I, you know, I'd sometimes have parents coming in hot and mad that I didn't play their kid in the game or, you know, whatever decision it was. And, and I'd always encourage parents, man, let's have those conversations, but let's not have them right before the game, not right after the game. And, and I actually had to go back and say this, not during the game. <laughs> that did happen. Uh, because, man, let's, let's give it a moment and, and let, let me cool down, let you cool down, and then we can have a, a healthier exchange. There's a time. There's a time. There's also a place. There's a place that maybe as parents we think about, are we fighting in an unhealthy way in front of our children? Now, now I think it's important that our children see conflict dealt with well. But there might be a place where we need to go and shut the door to have this exchange. Believers, where and where and how are we having these conversations? Is it in front of unbelievers in a way that wouldn't make sense? It's only going to ruin the hearer? Right? we got to think about the time. Think about the place. Think about the motive. Think about the manner. And what are we really arguing about? we got to get below the surface. What's at the root of this? Why are we arguing? Is it just because I don't like them? Am I just trying to prove myself? One of the things I've realized as I get older, there are less and less rocks that I'm going to die on. There's a, there's a humility that can come with walking with, with Jesus to recognize, man, there are some things we need to live and die for, but there are a lot more things that we don't. And the final point I want to see, the useful worker is set apart for God. The useful worker is set apart for God. We are called in this passage, Timothy is called to present himself to God for his purposes. And by definition, you are also setting yourself apart. You're not setting yourself uh, in, in front of other things or other people for their purposes. This is the idea behind the word holy, that we are wholly set apart to God and set apart from everything else. He uses this kind of confusing analogy that we're not going to have time to get into this morning, but I just want you to look at the bottom. He's talking about being vessels used by God, and here in the yellow he says that we're to be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And what I see that follows is you're going to see three things that we're called to avoid, to be set apart from, and three things that we're to be set apart unto. So we'll look at those and, and then be done. Uh, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace from a pure heart. The first principle I see here is that we are to avoid youthful passions and pursue God's heart. To avoid youthful or immature passions. This word means desire. So when I just want to win, when I just want to be right, when I just want to look good, that's a desire that's self-involved, that's immature. 
What he says is to pursue, pursue is God's purity, God's heart. Man, I, I want to, and this, this involves, what do you say to pursue? Righteousness, that I'm living right before God. A faith that says, I trust God and what he's calling me to, what he's calling me to say. A love that I'm thinking about the other person before myself and a peace that I have in my heart before my God. And if we are not pursuing those things, he says, man, we're going to give in to those sinful, selfish, immature, youthful desires and passions. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in us will eventually come out of us. And we see this when we, when we have trials, when we're tested. Uh, I've, I've heard it asked this way. When, when someone bumps into me, what spills out of me? So if inside I am angry and I am raging, right? I'm ready to go. When someone bumps into me, it's time to knock down drag out, right? But man, if I, am, if I am at peace with my God, if I'm resting in the joy of Jesus, I can see a person when they bump into me, not as an opponent, but in love, go, man, what's going on in their heart? And how can I help potentially set that captive free? So the best way that we can be prepared to serve others well, to engage in words well, is to love Jesus the most. So that when we're knocked into what comes out is not youthful passion, but the love of Jesus Christ himself. The other thing we're here to avoid is he says, avoid arguers and pursue God's people. Uh, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So Paul says, pursue this kind of living and do it with others. Do it with, in, in good company. The word disciple, which we all are as believers, we're disciples of Jesus, it just simply means to be a learner. Our master is our teacher. We learn from him, right? So we're called to be discipled by Jesus. We're also called in that process to be discipled by other people as well. So we should be learners to put ourselves in situations where we can learn what it looks like to have healthy disagreement, where it, what it looks like to hash out truth. This is one of my favorite things about our, our leaders here, the, the elders at our church. Every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., just as Jesus is waking up, we get together. And, and we talk about truth, we, we have these exchanges, and we, we learn what it looks like to pursue truth and, and disagree with one another at times, sometimes even passionately. A couple weeks ago, we had a disagreement, and one of our elders said something, and the other guy totally disagreed with him, and he goes, I, 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 I love you. <laughs> and it was such a beautiful moment where it's like, we don't, we don't see eye to eye on this, and that's okay, because we still love each other, and we're unified, and we're pulling in the same direction. We need influences in our life that show us what healthy exchanges in search of truth uh, really looks like. So the question is, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you surrounding yourself with? This is what we call a chick magnet. <laughs> Which Jill, my wife, who grew up in 4-H, um, gently, kindly told me after the service, sweetheart, those are ducks. <laughs> so I rebuked her in the name of... No, I did. Uh, <laughs> Oh, so smart. All right, so finally, uh, we were called to avoid arguments and pursue God's providence. We want to surround ourselves with the right kind of people, and we ultimately want to avoid this kind of talk and instead pursue God's providence. I get this from verse 25. God, God may perhaps grant them repentance, change of mind, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Who does it? Not Justin, but God. You see, what we're called here, notice Paul is not saying to avoid conflict. 
He's not saying don't ever, don't ever talk, you know, just whatever, your truth is your truth. This is not called to, a call to passivity. It's a call to humility. It's a call to recognize I am not God. I don't see everything right, and I don't have the power to raise people from the dead. I don't have the power to change people's hearts, but my God does. This is what my God is doing. God can lead them to repentance. God can change their hearts. God can change their minds. Matthew 7, Jesus said some hard words. He said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard and leads to life, and those who find it are few. Do do you hear what he just said? Man, the way to life is hard and it's narrow, and there are not many that will find this path. Here's a sobering reality. Most people, since Jesus raised from the dead, have rejected the free gift of life through Jesus offered by God. Most people have, and most people will. So as messengers of that gospel, most people will not listen. Most people will not accept, and yet we still share it faithfully. Why? We're here to remember we are not the Savior. We are not God. I will never argue someone into a right relationship with God. God isn't up there crossing his fingers and going, man, I hope that Justin's clever enough. I hope Justin's slick enough to talk someone into a relationship with me. It's his word. It's his power that changes hearts. It's his word. It's his power that changes minds, that frees from Satan's trap, that leads people to the truth. We're not here to argue. We're here to pray. Let us be the right kind of people who are talking to the right person. Let's look, we look to him for outcomes. That we, we speak the truth. We have a job, right? We're not just laying back and going, oh, God will do it sovereignly. No, no, no. He's engaged us in this good work of speaking the truth and living the truth in love. But then we leave it up to God to change the heart of stone. The last verse we want to look at, verse 19. He wants to encourage Timothy and us, stand on the firm foundation of God's providential knowledge. Stand on the firm foundation of God's providential knowledge. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And he wants to tell us two truths here. So important for us to remember and believe. Number one, he says, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. He goes, Timothy, look. It might look like these false teachers, these quarrelers in the church are ruining everything. And it might be hard at times to know who's the wolf and who's the sheep. And ultimately, that's not our job. We're not the judge, right? That's not our, we're not here sorting through the wheat and the chaff. But God knows who are truly his. We can fool each other, but you can't fool God. He says, I know who are mine. I know who are truly approved by me in the name of Jesus. Then he also says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let me, I know who's mine, Timothy. What I want you to focus on is setting yourself apart to me from iniquity. That's the big Bible word for sin, for evil. Set yourself apart from that stuff, apart from the quarrels, apart from the lies, and set yourself apart to me for my purposes and what I can do through you. And use those words that I've given you, Timothy, to speak the truth and not tell lies, to build up and not tear down. Let's pray. Father God, You are truth. You're the God of truth. What you say is true. You cannot speak a lie. Who you are and your character is true. What you do is true and good. And and we just want to thank you this morning, Father, for revealing your truth to us. You didn't have to do that. But you inspired the pens of these men to tell us what we need to know about God. 
if we know ultimately, Lord, your word is truth, that Jesus Christ himself is the truth, the way, and the life, the giver of life and creation physically, and now and through the redemption of, of the, the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and risen to give us new life, we may now, with that good and better word, know you and be in right relationship with you, that, Lord, we acknowledge Jesus was the only one who ever lived on this earth and perfectly spoke truth in love that perfectly set himself apart for you for your work. That's not me, Father, that I freely confess that I use my words for myself. I use my words to argue. I use my words in pride. I use my words to win. I use my words to look good. I want to thank you that Jesus has set me free, that Jesus has set us free so that we can do good works that, will be, that you will approve of by faith, that we can now go into the world and use these words to give life, not to kill, to build up, not to destroy. Father, may we be a people that when the world hears us speaking, yeah, they'll hear the hard truth and the hard reality that there is sin and there is judgment, but also the beautiful, greater reality that there is a Savior. That we would not ruin the heroes by petty, foolish, distracted arguments. That we build each other up that we would be a witness to the world that the truth has come to set the captives free. It's in your true, loving name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.